Welcome, folks, to the Ronin Rabbit, a Usaki Yojimbo fan podcast. I'm your host, Ed Moore, and be aware there will be spoilers. Teal Productions on Twitter is one of the ways that you can get in with me. I post the episodes on the Usagi Yojimbo Dojo Facebook page and on the Usagi Yojimbo Facebook page. BigTimeNoise.com slash RoninRabbit is the website. You can leave comments there. And of course, you can comment on the posts on the on Facebook, too. That's why I threw that out there. And uh, the email is usagipodcast at gmail.com. Now, the book I'm looking at is Usagi Yojimbo Issue 4, excuse me, Issue 5 of Volume 4, the IDW Full Color Volume. The story is The Hero Part 2. Our story opens with Usagi fighting another zombie uh, general, probably. he's U- Usagi is reading the story that Lady Mura has written, and he is the hero in the story. He has put himself in that place. And so the battle continues until such a time as the evil general, uh, nay, vampire, nay, monster of some sort, bites Usagi. And while Usagi has him close... He does the stabbing through himself to stab the bad guy who's on his back trick. Uh, Killing the bad guy and, of course, wounding Usagi, uh, potentially mortally. If not, I'm sure that the bite that he suffered on his neck is not going to help him live either. Between the two, the hero dies. Um, Then we flip to real life. Well, as real life as a comic book is going to get anyways. And Usagi's closing the book and telling the Lady Mura what a wonderful story, but so tragic. And he says, uh, yeah, it's actually, I, I wish they could have lived happily together. And the lady tells him, well, that's not our tradition, Uzi. In our stories, the hero never gets the girl at the end. Our, uh, assuming is the uh, Japanese culture of the time, is what she's referencing. I don't think uh, that Mr. Kai would be throwing any allusions to us as the reader. So it must be there time is our she's describing usagi asks her if she's writing another story she says yes much to my husband's annoyance uh, it's a story of the empress jingu and her invasion to the land of tigers and it'll be published soon that'll come up again later usagi says as our scene has backed from seeing ugi and lady mora to outside of the temple where they have uh, stopped overnight to seek shelter trying to hide from some bandits from earlier uh, in the story, last issue. And he says, Jingu, her son became Hachiman, the god of war. And she says, yes, it's said. And in the middle of that, he stops her with the hand signal and turns. And then in the next panel, shouts, I know you're out there. We want no trouble. Leave us alone and continue on your way. And then from sea, someone says, we know you travel with a fine lady. We just want what carries and maybe we will hold her for ransom. Give her up and we will let you walk away alive, samurai. And Usagi yells back, this lady is under my protection. To abandon her would be dishonorable. However, I will let you go. I will let you live if you, or rather, however, I will let you live. Emphasis is very important. If you go now. so. And we see Two, four, six, eight bandits here outside. Uh, they start speaking amongst each other, weighing, you know, is it worth it? How good a samurai is he? What are we going to do? 
And so finally they come up with an idea that, yes, you're absolutely right. We can't charging in because he will be waiting for us and cut us all down. What we need to do is get them out here with us. And so we'll smoke them out. Go get some damp leaves. And so they go and they set up a fire somewhere. We don't know exactly where they do it. I would be curious to see. But the smoke really starts billowing in and through the temple, filling it to where door and windows. Um, so I, I guess they must have gone underneath it, like maybe in the back, because Usagi is watching the front and didn't see him. But we don't know. I, and, and really, it doesn't matter. I'm, I'm being probably a little too geek nitpicky there. What matters is that the bandit's plan to flush them out seemingly works as Usagi comes rushing out the door, leaps over a couple of the bandits who are standing right by the door behind them, and then starts fighting the bandits who are the next level back. As they're all engaged, the Lady Mura finally uh, has to leave the confines of the temple because of the smoke, and as she rushes out... Those bandits that are remaining, which is about half or less of the troop, uh, turn their attention on her to get her, which ultimately was the right. So uh, Usagi, though, jumps again in between she and the bandit and fights off the remaining bandits. They run. Um, uh, telling part of the conversation here, you saved me, Usagi. You are my hero, she says. She says, no, I'm just your bodyguard. Lady Mura indicates that they're near a town where her father is a magistrate. Uh, we can go there, report the brigands, get a uh, safe place to rest for the night or for whatever period of time. You know, it's a, it's a safe haven. The next uh, day, I would imagine, because it was kind of night when all this happened or maybe just sun up when it happened. We find that Usagi and Lady Mura are indeed at her father's house. They're having tea explaining what goes on and what has gone on. I find that her dad is um, outwardly, I guess, feigning, perhaps, disappointment in his daughter because she is the wife of a samurai and has left him. And that is that is not what you do. Now, we find out... Uh, well, we, we got hints in the, in the first part of the story that... Uh, Sizo is not the nicest person and certainly has not treated her nicely. On top of that, issues about how Sizo, uh, he, uh, issues about how he feels that people perceive he as opposed, or him, excuse me, as opposed to how they uh, see the Lady Mura. And he doesn't like how he perceives that to be. So as they're having tea here and, and just kind of relaxing, Sizo. Uh, I would imagine that probably her Lady Mura's father told Cizo, sent a messenger to Cizo that his wife, uh, Cizo's wife, was in a tent there. Come and fetch her. And he does. He shows up. And he is quite the, um, uh, let's see, uh, bell end. Uh, for those of you that know that others look it up, I don't, I don't want to get too mean. Uh, and, and he acts it in every panel, every panel in this book that he hears. He epitomizes a bell end and that's b-e-l-l-e-n-d in case I, I think i have a little bit of nasally coldy thing going on so it might not clearly bell end yeah um ultimately she lady mura defers to her husband and leaves uh, at one point as they're talking i guess to each other uh, sizing each other up really is what it is Usagi 
um, comes out his katana as if to pull it, but she, Lady Mura, um, gets in the middle of that discussion and, and kind of quells that she doesn't want... She knows that Usagi could take her husband, I believe, but she doesn't want that kind of thing to happen, and, and I'm sure, particularly, she doesn't want that kind of thing to happen in her father's house. So, uh, right off, Lady Mura and Sizo, back to their home. We're left with Lady Mura's uh, father and Usagi, and they have a discussion here for several panels that ultimately we see... We knew, you know, how Usagi feels about it. That's just reinforced here. But we see from the talking of Lady Mura's father that he also sees that Sizo is quite the bell end, and it is unfortunate that that is what his wife has been yoked to. However, being the daughter of a samurai and being married to a samurai, she knows and her father knows how she must act. And and that is all they can go on. That That is... Uh, you know, we, we're in a, a society here that is very um, honor. Well, yeah, honor, honor says that things must go the way they are going. Of course, uh, in my mind, and I think in the mind of most people, honor also says that CISO is a bell end, and that kind of muddies up the issue. But we, we're not allowed at this time in this to have muddy. Uh, it's very black and white. Honor says, Bushido says, this how you act, and regardless of your circumstance, that is how you are required to act. So, uh, honor Bushido in feudal Japan. It has its its good points. It has its very noble points, but it it can be quite the uh, difficult thing to maintain in real life as well. Ultimately, Lady Mura's father offers Usagi uh, since he won't stay. He says, you know, stay as long as you want. Usagi says, no, no, thank you. I have my own pilgrimage that I must continue. So Leo's father offers him a horse and says, here, please take one of my horses. Any of the territory, the horse can be left there and it will get back to me. So basically, you have the loan of this horse until you get to the edge of my territory. Leave it and, and we're good. Susie rides off. And at some point in the future here, he rides upon a scene where we have a dismounted Sizo and Lady Mura, their horses, are there nearby, and Lady Mura is lying on the ground with his sword drawn. Usagi once again hops off his horse. Not once again, but he hops off his horse, runs up, surveys Lady Mura, uh, assumes that she's dead. Looking at the picture, it looks like she's dead. Goes up to Sizo, thumbs his sword, and says, What happened here? And then we have a panel of Sizo just standing there staring at Usagi. I'm sure he's contemplating whether he even needs to answer this Ronin or not. But he does as he sheaths his sword and says, We were attacked by those bandits you let get away. I was able to drive them off as you did, but not before they killed my wife. So that's his story. He and Uzi go back and forth until finally Sizo says, Do you question my account? And two panels, Usagi, looking at Sizo, just as five or six panels back, Sizo looked at him. Interesting bookend, I think, for this series of panels. He says, no, I cannot. There's no real evidence to prove otherwise. And his his visage, his face kind of uh, softens quite a bit as he admits his defeat. He uh, finishes sheathing his sword. Like I said, he had just popped it out a little bit. She's it. Uh, he Usagi bends down to the Lady Mura and says, We must return her to her father. And Sizo says, You do it. I've had enough of her. And rides off. Lady Mura is alive as Usagi 
bends down to do something. You know, he's not sure. I don't think exactly what he's going to do. Probably still intent on hoisting her up and taking her to her father. They have a little conversation here, enforcing the fact that he is the kind of man she wishes that Cizo was or she wishes she was yoked to. Says that he is still her hero and dies in his arms. And on the final panel of that scene, we have pulled up into the branches of the trees a little bit, looking down kind of obliquely at Usagi holding Lady Mura. Lady Mura has a skull um, uh, speech bubble. And Usagi is crying over. I'm, I'm very surprised over the amount of time that he has been with her that he uh, developed that strong an attachment to her. Not that it would not be sad, of course, that she died, but to sob. Um, that, that's kind of interesting, I think, for Usagi with all of the times that we have seen that that perhaps was not his reaction. Uh, months later, the... Lord that Cizo is under visits him and says, I, I want to compliment you. M my Lord, you honor me, Cizo says, as he knows uh, that his Lord was going to be there because he's already uh, supplanted himself on his knees to receive him. Uh, his Lord says, I just finished reading your wife's book about Empress Jingu, and I enjoyed it. Remember, that was the one she told Usagi in the temple that night that she was preparing. Everyone is reading it. It's the talk of the clan. And then he gets a very serious face and says, It's a shame that her life cut so short. And his face brightens up again. But her fame will live throughout the centuries. Maybe even after I'm you and forgotten. <laughs> and I, I don't mean that to be a sarcastic laugh. He's enjoying the fact that her works will go on. Uh, you must be very proud of Cizo, he says as he leaves. And then we see Cizo, um very much despondent. Um, very slumped as he's kneeling. He's upright, but he's kneeling and he's, his back is arched. Very slumped. And he says, and, and I can, I can, it's not in the, the frame here. I can almost see him shaking his head a little bit. He says, even in death, she mocks me. <sighs> as he pulls his, uh, probably his wakasashi. You have led me to this mirror as he unsheaths it and lays it down on the floor in front of him. He pulls open his robe and pulls open his undergarment. He places the blade point at his breast. And in the fine, we see him slumped over on the floor with a uh, pool of blood. Sizo had committed seppuku. Or, well, I don't know if this would necessarily um, be called a seppuku, but he kills himself. Um, seppuku is ritual suicide. This isn't very ritually, ritualistic. This... Uh, coward bell end, uh, not able to take it anymore, and just for. And in the back here, we have story notes by Ruth Wold. So bear with me as I go through some, or perhaps all of these, just to add a little flavor to this. I, I hope it's difficult to determine whether or not Ms. Jingu existed. On one hand, her name is written in the Kojiki, the Records of Ancient Matters, the Nihon Shokai, Chronicles of Japan, and Gukensho. Uh, the latter two are about the early history of Japan, while the Kojiki is the oldest known book in Japan and documents Japanese mythology and Shinto beliefs. Uh, there's also a Kofun tomb in her name in Japan. Additionally, in 1881, she was the first woman to be honored on a Japanese banknote. Since no images of her have surfaced, the pictures on the banknote was an imagining of her likeness. This same picture was reused in 1908, on a Jeff stamp featuring her 
and was the first Japanese stamp to feature a woman, was used again in 14, 24, 37, and 39 as they reissued female-oriented stamps and it had Princess Jingu's uh, likeness on it. On the other hand, legend has it that she used vine jewels to control the tides and was pregnant for three years during her bloodless conquest of Korea. So she was demoted from the official line of Japanese emperors to being just listed as regent. Now that is another set of uh, folklore, folk tales of her. Traditional records of ancient Japan purport that Empress Jingu was born around 169 AD, married Emperor Chawei, and later took his throne in 200 or 201 AD after he died. Immediately following his death, she led a three-year invasion into Korea. Now, there are several old paintings depicting her leading the invasion. She returned triumphant and was said to have carried her unborn son in her womb for three years during the conquest. I guess the idea being that during that time she didn't want to um, have the child, but she did want to have a child. So she just held on to it until she was, she was ready. Quite the feat. Um, historians propose that perhaps a period of less than nine months contained three seasons or harvests, and they were referred to as a year. So uh, perhaps that year is not the 365 year as we measure it now. Uh, regardless, her son Ojin was later deified as Hachiman, the god of war, due in part to his presence in Empress Jingu's womb during her Korean conquest. I made mention that Usagi made mention of that back when they were in the temple, and she mentioned her book here on the empty. Upon her death in 269 AD, Ojin, that is her son, became the fifth emperor of Japan. Uh, whether or not Empress Jingo lived, it has been recorded and verified that Japan had gained some control of southern Korea by the 4th century AD, and more historical records of China and Korea refer to the Japanese country of Wa as the Queen Country, indicating that more than likely a matriarchal society was probably present in Japan during this time. Thus, more credence is given to empresses and women warriors during the 3rd century AD and to the distinct possibility of Empress Jingu's existence. Cool stuff. little Japanese history there for you. Ancient, ancient history. All right, in the second part of the episode, go over the final two stories in the 3rd anniversary Usagi Yojimbo tribute book as put together by members of the Usagi Yojimbo Dojo. Now, the first story is, I believe it's pronounced Hige, by, and Matt Nelson indicates in the back. Um, first, he's from Spokane, Washington. He has been working on webcomics since 99. Uh, Catbeard the Pirate is the name of his webcomic, if you want to look that up. And has been an Usagi fan since he was 11 years old. Doesn't say how old he is now, but I would say probably that's a good 20, probably to 30 years, just guessing. And the story opens with a huge single-page panel of a forest. Uh, the tops of many, uh, looks like evergreen trees of some sort, clouds and birds, very reminiscent of a Stan Sakai uh, art style. Clash, clang, clang is down the bottom of this frame. Then we zoom in a little bit more and we see two probable samurai fighting here. They don't necessarily have all the attributes of samurai, but um, the swords, they, they are wielding katanas. Um, I don't know that the Japanese were kind of like later on the French, who just the noblemen would just gather to have a sword fight because uh, one got mad at the other, basically. I, I don't think the 
typical Japanese commoner wielded a sword or, or possessed or owned a sword. So they're fighting. Uh, it, one is a cat, that to be Hige, and the other is maybe a bear. And uh, Hige disarms his opponent, and his opponent uh, in, in feigned uh, bravado says, Well, what are you waiting for, bounty hunter scum? And Hige says, Let me tell you a little story, Aaron Nobu. Uh, there's his name, sorry. Uh, Mukashi, Mukashi, you and your bandits attacked my home village in the mountains. Uh, Mukashi is a long time ago. So, in a galaxy far, far no, I'm, I'm Mukashi, Mukashi, long time ago. Uh, among the dead was a potter. He was my brother, Dago. D Kind of curious for a Japanese name, but we'll go with it. When I heard, I was inconsolable. I left my lord's service and dedicated myself to revenge. I tracked down every member of your gang, one by one, until I, it led you to me. It led me to you. Excuse me. And now I'll finally avenge my brother with your death. And the um, villainous Aaron has a dagger hidden in the back waist of his outfit. And he draws it and flings it at Hebe, striking him in the eye. He says, fool, a shame that your request will end this way. But allow me to reunite you with your brother. And as he approaches uh, to pick up his sword now, which is laying on the ground, we find that Hige just suffered an injury to his eye. Apparently, the dagger is not long enough to have tickled the brain because he still functions just now. And he kills this final bandit who is responsible for the death of his brother. Sometime later, uh, the scene is a bounty hunter holding up a front of a gentleman sitting at a table. And the bounty hunter says, hey there, word has it this guy was seen. He looked familiar. And the next panel, we see that the bounty hunter is Genosuke. And this gentleman sitting at the table says, my apologies, bounty hunter. Aranobu, the bandit, is dead. I killed him myself. And uh, Jinosuke says, blast, I've got to start tracking these guys down earlier in the morning as he's crumbling up the wanted poster to throw away. The says, here, have a drink uh, at, uh, on me. It's the least I can do as he slides some coinage over. Genosuke says, mighty, mighty kind of you. Didn't catch your name, friend. And then we see, final panel, the face of the individual with a patch over his eye, the correct eye. Uh, Hige. So there's a final wrap up, I guess, to that story. Story number 10, the final story in our tribute book, is Kandakuma, the Sushi Samurai. And this is by Roel and Kelsey Robles. Uh, Roel has quite a distinguished entertainment career, if I may say so myself. He's worked on the Star Wars prequels with George Lucas, Paul Kaufman, and Steven Spielberg. Was founding, one of the founding, or with George Lucas, worked with Phil Kaufman, Steven Spielberg, and others as a founding member of Rod Zemeckis' Disney company, Image, Image Movers Digital. Uh, he also was a driving force in the Series 1 and Series 2 sets by Roku Toys of the Usagi Ujimbo statues. I believe he probably was involved in either sculpting, the art or the sculpting of those. So those of you that uh, the name know about those Roku Toys statues there. Much sought after to acquire by collectors. I myself have none of them. So, um, let's see what else. He was also instrumental in the Usagi Ujimbo short film, Last Request, which was shown at San Diego Comic-Con. This allowed him to secure the rights for a feature film. 
Um, he's worked, let's see, worked on... Some of the folks involved for Nightmare Before Christmas helped him work on the Roku Toys figures. Uh, he is present in the Filipino martial art of Eskrima. He's been a stunt coordinator. He presented George Lucas with a Filipino sword, the Barong, which was the inspiration for Count Doku's lightsaber, uh, styling and shape and everything. And he is the creative director, producer of Freight Train Art Studios and working in the and video game industry. And Raul, if you uh, listen to the show and I messed any of that up, please uh, let me know and I will gladly make the corrections. I don't want to miss, you know, misidentify things that you have been involved in as, as you have stated them here in the book. And Kelsey Robles, which is his daughter, um, she started working on animation when she was attending San Diego, uh, San Jose State University. She is trained in judo and escrima by her father. She was also involved in the Usagi Jimbo Last Request animated feature, uh, short film. No. She's currently working in a surgery center, apprenticing as a surgical technician. But she still keeps her toes and fingers in the movie industry and in the auto repair shop, working on her 85 Toyota Supra. So here for... Kunde Kuma, the sushi sandwich. It opens with a small uh, stall uh, with a gentleman and his son behind it. And uh, we see that a gentleman has paid for an order. And the gentleman, the uh, straw cape and wide hat um, you all see with, with peasant or, or low ranking individuals moving around. And a lot of times, higher level people wanting to hide will use this same thing as kind of a disguise to like uh, the the many common people that are in a given area and the young son says one order a special dad so we see it's a dad and son working this little uh, sh uh counter uh shop eh, there's another word that was in mind but it fled me so Kande is cutting up a fish we see him cut his head off and start slicing uh pieces uh, sushi so I'm, I'm assuming uh, assuming maybe this is tuna sushi the sun shouts out to try to gather more customers indicating sushi sushi here or sushi 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 um, and then the son asks the father a question and he starts thinking and drifts off into memories as he's preparing the order for this person and we see several adventures that his dad went on when he was an um i guess active samurai he's in armor here and has fought many battles you can see he says when his boss died he decided to travel the world and first he journeyed to uh the philippines in the south and we see him fighting a Rhinoceros? Is that what this one is? Let's see. I believe he tells us... No. Okay. But he did this rhinoceros and won and took his sword as a trophy, which is a sword that is here in front of their stall, probably used to cut up larger things to, to start breaking them down. In India, I found some unique and intimidating spices. I read the locals for them, but... Um, it cost an arm and a leg, and here he's fighting a large mastodon. Um, I'm sorry. In the Philippines, he said he went to uh, learn their chopping skills for hand. Along the way, I learned their techniques. So we're seeing the visuals of what actually occurred, and he's speaking much more softly about it to his son as to what was going on. 
Um, in the midst of this, he asks his son Kogu if he can grate a daikon for him, and his son starts doing that. Next, his dad is telling him, uh, after India, I went to China and monkeyed around a bit as he's fighting a trio of knees. Is that it? That doesn't sound exciting at all. Well, that's kind of the point. Ha! It wasn't compared to raising you. The order is ready now, son. Let me wrap it up for you, Dad. And he wraps to this uh, individual that thanks him. Arigato. All this cooking is making hungry, the boy says. Can we eat now, too? And in that panel, we see walking away Usagi uh, as he is, uh, you know, disguised from being the samurai to being just one of the regular people. He stopped at this uh, little bench here that they have set up and stall, I think maybe is the word I'm looking for, the little stall here, and got him something to eat and went on his way. We have a couple uh, full-page panels of different things. Both of them include caricatures of Mr. Sakai. And then we have all of the bios for the creators. And at the end here, we have a dedication by Todd Shogun Bustillo. Shogun, I believe, is what he goes by on the dote. And then a follow-up by Steve Hubble as a thank you, thanking all the individuals involved. Uh, Ivan, Zach, Mark, Connor, Randy, Danny, Amy, Paul, Marcel, Matt, Raul, and Kelsey. And also Maka, Mechan, Java359, and of course Steve himself uh, and Todd, all involved in this tribute book. So there we go. Uh, that finishes up my coverage of the 35th anniversary Usago Yojimbo Usagi Yojimbo tribute book as put together by members of the Usagi Yojimbo Dojo and given out for free, I might add. This is a square bound, I didn't count it, many page book. Uh, excellent piece of fan literature here. This is this is a cool, cool thing. Glad I was able to get on board and get a, get a, a copy of that. Uh, that's all for me, guys. I hope that uh, the coverage of the tribute book was pretty cool, and I will talk to you next time. Ciao. The Ronin Rabbit Podcast is a Teal production, and as such, is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, non-derivatives, 3.0, unported license.